exploring faith journeys and inspiring ministries that embody the good news of God, you are listening to The Cumberland Road. I am your host, TJ Melanoski. Today's guest is Reverend Dr. Michael Qualls. He is the director of the Cumberland Presbyterian House of Studies, and he is the director of the Program of Alternate Studies, another path for preparing women and men to the office of ministry. In our conversation, we talk about the preparation and educational aspect of ministry, what it means to become a practitioner, and how having deep conversations and relationships with others leading people to the faith. Michael weaves the art of metaphor and storytelling in our conversation and explaining how his journey has led to having a grown-up childlike faith. And he takes the time to talk about his good friend, Jack. You are listening to the Cumberland Road Podcast, and here is my conversation with Reverend Dr. Michael Qualls. All right, Michael Qualls, thank you for joining me on the podcast. If you don't mind, would you just briefly describe who you are and for the listeners who may not know? Well, uh, thanks, DJ. Good morning uh, to all of you. I'm um, Michael Qualls. Most people know me as that southern country boy from rural South Arkansas, uh, which is who I am. Uh, But uh, I've been in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church since, well, I've been a member of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in some way since 1964, uh, when I I was eight years old. And and, uh, I have uh, been nurtured in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church throughout that whole journey. Uh, surrendered to preach at a very young age uh, at 12 and preached my first sermon at the age of 15 and uh, and went on to pastor church at the age of 19 and uh, you can probably see or you can't see on the camera because you're just listening to me if you could see uh, you could recognize that I've I've got a few miles on me by (laughs) 66 years old and uh, it's been a great journey we've enjoyed it so I direct, my current position is directing the program of alternate studies. That's my primary responsibility. Um, I've been a pastor all my life and I, I identify predominantly in that role. I am a pastor, still a pastor. Um, but uh, about 11 years ago, I was called, uh, f- I guess, from a pastor uh, to this denomination-wide ministry of helping folks prepare for ordained ministry, the primary responsibility of program audit studies in an alternate way. And what a joy it has been to serve in this way. All my pastorates have been joyful, um, but this is also a joyful uh, place to be in ministry in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. So uh, I have other responsibilities now as well in the church and I, and I serve, I continue to preach pretty regularly in different places. And um, that's still a source of real fulfillment and joy to me. Before we do a deep dive into your faith journey, what is the program of alternate studies? What does it do? Who is it for? 
Why does it exist? Yeah. Thanks, thanks for the question. As, as I do travel around to the various presbyteries for these past 10 or 11 years, pre-COVID particularly, um, it was amazing to me how frequently I would discover that people don't know anything about the program of studies. I, I mean, even committees whose responsibility it is to guide candidates <laughs> uh, didn't know what the Cumberland Presbyterian's program of alternate studies was all about. So it's been my joy to educate people about that. Uh, program of studies is the last iteration of a, of a real strong DNA in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church that from our earliest days, uh, I, I call it a missional context. The Cumberland Presbyterians realized that um, there was a real dramatic need on the American frontier for clergy to help lead congregations and evangelize, and um, and that there was a, a lack of of opportunities for them to get formal education. Uh, it had to go back to the East Coast or Europe, as you all probably know. And so the Cumberland Presbyterian Church, from the very beginning saw a need to come alongside people who did not have full opportunity to avail themselves of that kind of education and prepare them best they could to do the work of ministry. And so the, uh, it's been there all along, but the program of studies uh, in 1984 was adopted by the denomination as the latest version of how we come alongside people called by God, women and men who've been hindered from that uh, traditional route of a four-year college and three-year seminary. And uh, of course, it's more than that these days. But um, anyway, to come alongside them and uh, do the best we can to take their gifts and, um, and the offering of their ministry and, and hone it and help it uh, and prepare them, uh, shape, help shape them to be good leaders of congregations and ministry and uh, in the Common Presbyterian Church. So we get a variety of folks in that program. Uh, I love to tell the story about the class I had that had a, had a student that had two PhDs uh, in retirement age, went back, uh, called by God uh, to finish out their life, the last years of their life in ministry. So a person with two PhDs in the same classroom as a person with a GED. Uh, and it creates a lot of challenges for, for, for teachers. We've had the best in the denomination, in my view, um, personal, uh, you know, uh, present company accepted, I guess. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> I just keep coming back as an instructor. Yeah, we, we've had the best. We've had the best. Uh, I, I can't say enough about those who have, who devote themselves to help this program because they see the need and they see how important it is and they love the students and the program and what it does for the church. So anyway, uh, that's, that's what the program is. It's an alternate route. We usually, until the last couple of years, we have a summer extension school has met on the campus of Bethel University. We hope to go back this summer actually. And uh, because, but COVID has interrupted all of that, so as everything else. So we've had to learn a new set of skills. Uh, this online education has been something that just uh, was thrust upon us, although we had already been experimenting with it some, and, uh, but we, we all had to do it. We all had to take the whole program online 
And uh, uh, it's it's been challenging, but it's been really, really good. So I, that's probably more than you wanted to know. No, no, that's, that's fine. Talk more about um, the life of a student in the program of alternate studies and the balance of student life and family and many of the students are in seminary or, or I'm, so, I'm sorry many of the students are also serving in the church in some capacity and the challenges that they face um, talk briefly about that and and how the program of alternate studies encourages a balance between all those things as you know ministry by itself is can it's fraught with difficulties. It, it, it is, it is, I like to think of it as the most difficult thing a human being can enjoy. It is uh, definitely one of the loneliest professions. Uh, it is. And uh, I, I'm being honest when I say I have enjoyed my life in ministry. It's the most fulfilling thing. I can't imagine a more blessed life than the one I have experienced as a minister. But it has not been without extreme difficulties, and uh, and so we recognize that's also true for our students. Um, so they are coming, many of them already in some role. Uh, I, I guess there's not really a stereotypical POS student, but uh, I guess in my mind I would think someone who in a rural setting uh, who uh, has been asked to fill a pulpit for a church that's devoid of a ordained minister and perhaps they've been an elder or something else in the church but suddenly they find themselves facing you know a larger uh, responsibility in ministry and so many of them experience a call to uh, to ordain ministry therefore they have to prepare themselves and so when they come to our summer school say for example when they come to summer school uh, many of them are kind of blank slates they don't maybe have never had a class in biblical interpretation mm-hmm. um, or um, congregational leadership. It, it, it's possible. And many of them know s- some things. Uh, obviously, you don't, you don't live in the church for a lifetime without knowing uh, a lot. Maybe they know more than those of us who try to teach them. But, <laughs> but uh, so they come kind of a blank slate. But they, the way the program is set up, uh, it is designed for that kind of person so that they do not have to um, be uprooted from their life, their family. Their uh, Most of them have a vocation. Some of them are retired, but they have a secular vocation that they've lived in. They have a family, many of them with children. And uh, the program was designed so that they would not necessarily be uprooted, but they would come away for a while. And in the summer school, it's a 15-day full schedule. Um, a person can take up to nine classes in that 15-day in that period. So that's around the clock. In addition to that, we have student-led worship every day, uh, except for the weekends. And then we go to local churches uh, to participate. And we have fellowship opportunities, sometimes late at night, because classes aren't over. Uh, until you know nine o'clock at night, let's say uh, we have a devotion early in the morning. We have a we have a midday worship 
uh, we have sometimes uh, fellowship gatherings and sing-alongs. So it is a packed schedule and students can, it's, it's, it's enjoyable. It's like, it's like a camp meeting and a church camp uh, and school all packed into one. There's more to it than just the education. There's that fellowship, getting to know one another, the camaraderie. Uh, all of that is part of that, what we think of as the positive experience. But then once school is over and we try to keep one eye open and as we have make our way back to the real world, life is still there. And so they have to go back to their home, to their church, to their jobs and get right back into their routine and somehow manage to figure out how to do the assignments because that classroom is fun. Uh, we absorb it. We're hearing, we're hearing things we haven't heard before. We're thinking about we're, we're interacting with students and faculty. And then, you know, the, the hard part really is when you get home. So we have staggered deadlines throughout the remainder of the year so that students have a lot of time. We, we give probably more time than most people can imagine. Uh, in an academic setting, you, you never have, for example, two months four months, six months, but it's necessary. Uh, it's necessary for them to be able to reflect and to actually put into practice some of the things that they have uh, learned and reflect on that, return uh, either a written paper or some project report uh, or something that uh, the instructor would assign. So uh, I don't know if I even hit, hit on your question, but that's a typical uh, POS student would be coming away for the summer or some other. We have weekend schools and we have online classes. Um, but then the real work is in the context of life grinding out. And so um, it is not infrequent that we get a request for an extension. Uh, this is the second day of February. Yesterday was a deadline and I received at least a half dozen uh, requests yesterday for um, extensions. And um, we, try to, we try to have deadlines and we try to mean it when we say, you're, you know, you need your work here. And we also have enough flexibility. If a person has any reasonable um, uh, reason why they um, have been hindered in, uh, in finishing TJ Malinowski's class, uh, we usually try to have a lot of grace in that because life is difficult and grinds. Um, we have a policy that a, a person can only go 12 months uh, for any reason that if, if there's, even if there's, you know, some really great reasons, health issues, et cetera, et cetera, without, um, without a magnanimous uh, decision somewhere along the way to waive that requirement. 12 months is the deadline. It's a, it's a firm fixed deadline. And after that, the student will need to take the same class over again. Uh, and my thinking on that is that by that time, you have really forgotten whatever it is that you have been exposed to in the classroom. And um, I, I speak for myself after 12 months, if, if I haven't assimilated all that information, <laughs> try to put it together, it's, it's probably gone forever. <laughs> And we have we do have students that take classes uh, two or three times in order to get through. 
So I've been thinking about this question deeply recently, and you have a pulse on the academic world more than I do. What does preparing for ministry mean, that phrase? And what does that look like in the 21st century? Hmm. So could you define preparing for ministry? And then now, what does that look like? Well, currently and really in the last 15, 20 years. Wow, that that is a good question. I want you been thinking deeply about it. Uh, that, that That's a good question. And, well, and I, that I, here, I'll give you some context because and this may help you out. Because I feel like, you know, the educational process is, we even use the word training, or we use another phrase is how to be a minister. And, you know, I think a lot of times we approach it like very pragmatically, very practically, you know, the nuts and bolts. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a deeper layer to preparing for ministry. And, and, and what does that imply in terms of, of, does that touch on those philosophical questions of what is my purpose? What is my meaning? What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of death? Because, I mean, that's a commonality that every human being carries with them. And I think we can answer that philosophically. We can answer that theologically. And that carries us back to preparing for ministry, preparing for, for what, what does that mean from your perspective? I don't have an answer to my question. I'm just posing it. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I I prefer to be the interviewer than the interviewee because you just ask really good questions and that's it. Um, I am probably, I'll probably be the worst person to answer this question. Uh, in one way, and that is, I do not consider myself a theologian only in the sense that everybody who names Jesus is a theologian. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, we have to think theologically about everything that we do, whether we call it that or not. Uh, but I don't really, I, I'm not, um, I'm not a deep into philosophy or, or, or theological, um, um, I guess, the machinations of theological stuff. That's, that's probably the best I can say it. Uh, I am a practitioner. I've been a pastor all my life. It's what I know. It's mm-hmm. what I believe. It's what I'm committed to. So, it, you know, as, as disappointing as my answer might be, I have lots to say about it, but as, as disappointing <laughs> as it might be, uh, I have been in trouble more than once for using interchangeably the term training. Uh, because I, I do think there's a sense of expectation from the church, and, and it doesn't always jibe with what theological education is. But if we, don't, if we don't prepare people to minister in the settings or the real congregations or, the, uh, or, or lead congregations to minister in the world, uh, you know, it doesn't really matter how we have you know, what other things we have done along the way that have really helped them reflect on the meaning of life, you know, Mm -hmm. what's purpose. So 
so uh, I've been blessed and to say with the program of alternate studies, we are able to focus a couple of ways that's not true with all theological education. We can focus on the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Hmm. We're not training anybody to do anything other than um, serve in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. Presbyteries send us um, candidates. They have to have a two-thirds majority vote to uh, to be uh, trained. Uh, I guess I'm using I'm going to use that term because uh, to be trained to be educated. Um, Dr. Buck used to. Dr. Buck and I used to go back and forth about that. He, he did not like me using the term train. And, and he's certainly much more um, much more wise and, and th- theologically astute than I am. But, uh, but my sense of what we do is, is something like that. Uh, they are, these students have been hindered from a formal education. Uh, they are required to have, uh, without special permission, they're required to have at least 60 college credit hours of undergraduate. That's a requirement. Uh, and, and that's to meet our constitutional understanding for Cumberland Presbyterians. I'm all mm-hmm. over the map, I know, but I'll come back. Maybe. Um, our constitutional requirements envisions that they would have a bit that, that persons who are going into ordained ministry to have a good understanding of the world we live in, uh, mm-hmm. and geography and, and math and sciences and and, and oftentimes people say, what does that have to do with it? Can just teach me how, give me a Bible and teach me how to preach. Well, um, if you don't really understand the world um, that we live in, um, then you can be pretty dangerous with a, with a tool like the Bible and a pulpit. Um, and so uh, we have this, that much formal education, at least. And most of the time it is required. There are special circumstances, just like seminaries have a, uh, in this case, 10% of the student body up to any, any time can be a special student status. Mm-hmm. Um, if they can do the, you know, keep up with the work uh, at a master's level, because I, we understand the program to be a master's level, uh, not a seminary class, but it's, uh, it's master's level education. Um, so we're back around then to uh, this idea of what, what, specifically can we do? We train, that is true. We teach, um, a person comes through the program of all studies, uh, knows how to moderate a session when they graduate. That's just practical. Um, they better know. I mean, I'm sure there are exceptions out there. <laughs> I didn't do, I didn't teach that one, whichever one that is. Uh, they know, uh, you know, they know some Blocking and tackling some some basic stuff, mm. but I hope, and, and I don't think we've really done our job uh, unless we have also taught them to think, um, you know, critically and uh, and as I said, theologically uh, about the world, not just take everything for granted. Um, we don't, and, and it's it's not infrequent that I. You know, I have somebody say, I don't like the way they I've been challenged in this class, et cetera, et cetera. I don't like the theology of this professor. Uh, they're they're too far left or too far right. Um, and I I have been from the first day before I ever started with this program, I have been saying and I continue to say it. If you get to the end of your educational journey and what you already knew already believed 
has not been challenged, then you need to ask for your money back and, and we'll give it to you because we haven't done anything. If we don't challenge, that's how we grow. It's the same, you know, so you're not going to, when you come to the end, you're not going to agree with everything that you've heard anybody say during the whole program. I, I hope you don't because you're unique, but, um, but you have been challenged and you have been, what I hope, been required to see how someone else could come to a different understanding than the one you have come to. And to me, TJ, that, that changes the tenor of the church. It gives us a, a way to work together in a, in a very diverse situation. So just pondering that on, on, you know, preparing for ministry, what does that mean and, and how many different ways can that be heard? And then pragmatically, what does that look like now with in the 21st century, whether in terms of academics and education yeah. and are we touching right. as Christians, are we touching those deep points of life and death and everything in between? It was just a question I've been pondering and I wanted to hit you up on it in terms of thinking about it. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, having, having your feet in the academic world, I just wanted to pose it to you. Well, okay. I, I can't improve on what, <laughs> on what I've already said about it, which I know uh, not very much, but um, you know, when you, when you broaden the, the understanding to theological education, you know, I, I, I have been with your original question, I've been kind of focusing on the program auditor studies and what it is we hope to accomplish, but, but you're right. I'd also have a direct approach, the Cumberland Presbyterian House of Studies from Memphis Theological Seminary. I teach classes there as well. And that is under the broader umbrella of theological education. That's, um, that, that's, um, I guess I would have to reflect more uh, on the broader understanding. Um, I wrestle with, and I'm not by myself, I'm sure, but I wrestle with what, um, how to prepare anybody <laughs> for, for the unknown mm -hmm. that is unfolding, that's our future. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I've been in ministry all of my life. I, let me tell you my favorite classroom, the moment I, I was teaching a doctor ministry program uh, class on evangelism, actually, it's on, on developing congregations in the 21st century. That's what it was about. And my favorite class, probably, that I've ever taught, and, and if anybody's had my class, know I, I, like to, I like anecdotes, I like to tell stories. I think a lot of truth gets told in the process of metaphor. Um, and, and I, maybe that's the best preparation we can do is just kind of give ourselves some, something we can grab a hold of and help make sense of what we're doing. But this particular class, I, I, we were, <laughs> we were talking about what's ahead for the church. And, um, I, I explained to the class that I, I had, I like to tinker, uh, work with my hands and that over the years I had accumulated a lot of tools that have. I've been able to do everything. And I brought a big old, those old rusting metal toolbox yeah. that 
some of you may have in your garage somewhere. Kids don't even know what that is or why you would have it. But, but big metal toolbox full of wrenches and pliers and the hammers and screwdrivers and all those things. And I explained to them these are tools that I had developed, you know, over the years have been very helpful. And then I proceeded to dump the entire box into the trash can. And I said, that's where we really are. Because everything that we have in our toolbox no longer applies in a new paradigm where you don't need these tools. You need something else. And we're, we're going to have to really figure out what that is. Mm-hmm. And at, when the last wrench clanked in the bottom of that trash can, I don't know what it was like. And I think the whole building probably just stopped in their tracks. <laughs> but I know my class, D-Men students. And all the way through Master Divinity. And I had a student, and he said, Doc, you're going to have to just give me a minute. I, I have to process this. And, 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 and it was just quiet for a little while. It was just a quiet for a little while. And so as, as dramatic as that is, I'm... I'm saying still now, we don't have enough clarity about what future looks like. Um, and, and many of the things that we have depended on in the past will not be dependable in the future, in my view. And I, that's all it is. It's an opinion. Um, so so I, I, you know, I've got some good metaphors for what that is, but I don't have any really I guess, sound teaching. I've got several things I could share, but I'm still not sure if they would be valuable. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. This this worked yesterday. This tool worked yesterday, but I'm not real sure if it will work in the situation today. I think a lot of people are that way. Well, I think I just described the kind of an ethos of the church right now not <laughs> very very timid and 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 trepidatious because we don't know uh it doesn't feel the same because it's not the same uh i mean when i was when i was growing up not everybody went to church but there was a pervasive notion in the culture that everybody ought to mm-hmm. even if they didn't they sort of agreed that it's something that you do in our, in our very Christian uh, world, our very Christian culture. Um, and as you know, and as probably every listener knows, um, that is not the same today. Uh, it is an increasingly unchristian culture, uh, post-Christian, many have talked about post-Christian culture. And you can't even assume that you are talking a language that can be understood. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you just talk about Jesus dying on the cross for it, it's, it's just the kind of the bedrock stuff that we might all have grown up with and, and the language and all of that seems just so natural and normal. It seems like a foreign language to the increasingly unchristian culture in America and Western civilization, I guess, in general. Uh, that's what it seems, and I am, again, let me repeat, I, I do not consider myself a theologian or a philosopher 
or any of those things. I, I do ponder these questions. And from my perspective, as uh, someone responsible to help prepare people for that, uh, I try my best to, uh, to do that honestly. And, um, uh, you know, my, I did an evangelism class in, in, at seminary this semester or so ago, and uh, I don't know if they picked up anything that I had to say, but the best thing we did was attend a, a, a um, future church summit uh, online and had some wise people who have thought about these things uh, to share about what some of the ideas that they think we might see in the future. And I, I really felt like that might have been the biggest takeaway of the whole class was just that moment where we all listen to people who've, who, who have uh, credentials and who are, uh, have given some deep thought to what the future might look like. And even they would say, we have no idea. We don't really know. <laughs> well, Michael, in the, in the spirit of storytelling, do you mind sharing with me a meaningful experience that you've had with God any time in your life? Yeah. Well, I, if you, I'm, I really appreciate getting that question. Um, my, my problem, my hesitation is only because I, I, I'm not sure I can narrow it down to <laughs> one or two uh, meaningful. Of course, I, I'm going to say I just read this. I just read uh, this past week about, uh, uh, someone else uh, who had uh, wandered into a Cumberland Presbyterian church at the age of 14 and um, later uh, had, was very well known, had, had lots of different, um, very eclectic individual, but even in public life, always pointed back to that day when at the age of 14 um, at a revival in a Cumberland Presbyterian church, God became very real uh, to them and, and their life was changed after that. Um, so my experience of coming to know Jesus was be the most significant, without a doubt, spiritual experience. Um, and I've had, a, I've had a few, but um, as a young boy in a, in a small Cumberland Presbyterian church, rural South Arkansas, white clapboard, tall steeple, I just, described every common Christian church in the universe. <laughs> um, I first came to hear about a God who loved me and who was worthy of my love back. And, and, um, and I've, you know, there are a lot of ways I can say it as an adult, but at the time, what I understood clearly is that um, I needed to have Jesus part of my life. I wanted to love and serve that Jesus, and I made a commitment to do so, and uh, it has been transformative. I, I can't imagine where my life would be had I not said yes to Jesus when I think uh, that was an invitation clearly uh, from Jesus, and and then the nurture within the Cumberland Presbyterian Church the rest of my life um, still is, um, is the way God has you know, helped to shape um, that call, which is, you know, a call that every Christian has, a call to say yes to Jesus and love and serve, uh, follow that Jesus. And uh, that's, I hope I have done it falteringly for uh, um, 58 years. Um, 
you had you had mentioned that um, you experienced a, a call and urging to ministry sure. pretty early in life. Mm -hmm. You know, looking over the course of, of your life and your faith, how has it changed? How has your faith, your relationship with God, changed over the years? Hmm. Well, I almost have to put it in in the context of another significant story and a significant way God intervened. Mm -hmm. uh, in my life uh, that uh, I don't tell this very often. So I uh, might, might be a, a little difficult to get off to all get right. in, get let in touch get, with all of it. Let me get so, adjusted in my seat. Okay. So where everybody adjusts, yeah, everybody adjust your seat just a little bit. Um, so uh, having been called, I was 12 years old. I experienced what I consider one of only a couple of, um, visions that was the deep enough spiritual experience that, that I would call them uh, vision. Uh, and, and that call was simply a call. Uh, what I saw was, uh, was a world that was going the wrong way. And a few people who were traveling in the opposite direction. And I, I wondered why, where are they, what's the deal? And, and, and I heard an audible voice uh, in a 12 year old mind anyway, I heard a voice that was so clear to me that it was the voice of God that I have never doubted that until this present moment. And the voice simply said, you know, nobody told them there's a better way. And I want you to tell them. And um, that was my call to ministry. I wasn't in church at the time. Uh, I was with, a, with some youth doing preparation for a service we were going to do. It wasn't church service. No invitation was given. Didn't, you know, no, no pressure wasn't applied. Uh, I just, it happened. And so uh, sometime later, I stood before my little church and I, I said, explained what had happened. And, and I said, if I live the entirety of my life and only one person hears and turns away from the destruction and toward the life that's offered in Christ, then I will have considered my life, the entirety of it, worth living. Well, that didn't change. That's never changed until the present moment. But there have been moments where I have doubted my own ability. Uh, uh, I, you know, I've, I've had a lovely and wonderful, fruitful ministry, mostly predominantly um, quality relationships and congregations that I've been a part of. Um, but I did go through a very low ebb in my personal life. I had some tragic deaths that were maltimed and lots of other um, personal trauma, uh, relational trauma, et cetera, going on in my life, which waylaid me a bit. And when, when my older brother, who was just a year and a half older than me was, was killed in a tragic accident. I was his pastor and it's my job to tell his little four-year-old that he wasn't coming home and, and to offer words of comfort uh, to his parents who happened to be my parents who all were part of the church. And, uh, and I did all of that, but, but that triggered a depression in me, a deep anger and depression. It took me a long time. I've written about this before, but it took me a long time. Uh, to get through that. And, uh, and most of the time, nobody knew. 
Um, you know, the, the, I, I'm good at keeping the surface okay. I, I bring all that up simply to say during that period of time, I, was, I had some serious questions about whether, whether I could um, adequately continue uh, to, to, to offer words of hope week after week from the pulpit um, and, and to minister adequately to families in crisis and all the things that we do as ministers. Um, so I had some self-doubt. I guess that would be a best way to say that during that period of time. And um, I, I, I would love to tell the whole story, but we, we'd have hours. Uh, <laughs> and you, you'd have to do a lot of editing to get that there. But let, me, let me just say that the way I tell it is that I, I went into that experience with childlike faith. And I think everybody can identify. When I was growing up in that little Cumberland Presbyterian church, my brother alongside me, we made our professions of faith on that same day in 1964. Hmm. And we went separate ways along the way. And, um, and then I came back to be his pastor and, uh, you know, the pastoral thing uh, happened. And when he died, uh, suddenly, the day before we dedicated a new building we've been working on for quite a while, he, the last thing he ever did in life was he laid the carpet. That was what he did for a living. He put the carpet in the new church. I worked until seven o'clock on the morning of <laughs> uh, Sunday so that we could celebrate and have the grand opening, et cetera. And then he died at dawn the next day on a Monday, a tragic, terrible, unimaginable accident. Well, when that, when that happened, my childlike faith, which I thought if you believed the right things and did the right things, everything was going to work out. It was, you know, I was not prepared. I was not prepared. As many people in our churches are not prepared for tragedy, um, for, for something not working out, inexplicable, not working out. And when I came out on the other end of that long, long journey of in inspection, uh, uh, introspection, um, reflection, uh, I, I now have what I call a grown-up childlike faith. Um, I, you know, I know that God is author of all things. I trust God implicitly with my entire being. I believe Jesus is my Savior. I am not the least bit um, schizophrenic, uh, anxious about, <laughs> about my relationship with God through these, I never have been really that, that, that was never, that was never really an issue. Although I had some words that I said to God, I wouldn't say to, to nice people, uh, <laughs> but we had, but we had those words and, you know, God's a lot better to handle that than, than most people would be. And so my grown up childlike faith knows that it rains on the just and the unjust that things things in life happen in fact i think that it's helpful it's helpful for me and for many people in the unchurched increasingly unchurched world to think about that it's just as likely that nothing good ever happens than it is that nothing bad ever happens and so when something bad happens people say well it's you know, there can't be a God because God wouldn't allow this kind of suffering to take place. Well, that's just the opposite. In my view, is 
the fact that anything good ever happens helps. It's just a spark, but it's a spark of hope for me enough that I can hang my hat on that. My faith is in that reality where God brings something good where it doesn't have to exist. Hmm. And, and so, um, you know, that's, um, the childlike faith is still intact, but it's grown up childlike faith. And I'm not naive about bad things that happen. Um, mm -hmm. So, well, we've talked about, uh, the past a little bit. Um, I like asking guests this question, where do you see God working in your life today? I'm 66 years old, and um, I I have I have been I think for the entirety of my life I have been where I'm supposed to be. Uh, I have I have served in rural churches and suburban churches and small town churches. Not many. I was a new church. Um, church planter once upon a time. And in each of those instances, I, I can honestly say, I feel like I am where I'm supposed to be. I always felt that way. And when I came to direct program audit studies, I felt exactly that same way. It's just where, it's just where I'm supposed to be. I, I, I think um, I am. And, and when I say gifted, I mean that in the most humble way, but God has given me certain gifts that have, that have placed me in, in a place that where they can be used. And um, so this is that place for me right now. I'm where I'm supposed to be. And I feel that in the program model studies and that now in some expanded responsibilities. I feel like I'm where I'm supposed to be. And God has used all those, you know, those experiences, some of which I talked about here. God has used the, the gifts and the training for that matter. Mm -hmm. uh, I've been I've been privileged to I was a University of Arkansas grad. I'm an alum, a Razorback. I can call the hogs for you if you want me to. And <laughs> and and then uh, Memphis Seminary, and then I, I, I spent some time in Fuller Seminary doing some work in a D-man, and then I graduated from Columbia Seminary. So I've had a wide variety of um, educational experiences, and. That, in my view, has just sort of helped <laughs> along the way prepare me for where I am now. I've, I've seen a lot of a variety of educational experiences, and uh, I believe I'm thankful to have had all of those and my pastoral experience. Um, when I when I came to this, I'd already had over 40 years of pastoral experience, po mostly positive. And I, I know that's hard for a lot of folks to believe because it's not always that way. Right, right. <laughs> it's not always that way. And and that does not intend to gloss over the fact that in all those positive experiences, there were some, some atrocities. <laughs> there are some bad bad times, difficulties. Um, and I have plenty of those stories too. But uh, I don't know. I'm not a long answer to say I think <laughs> working in my life right now and directing this program. And I, at 66, feel like I still have something to contribute. And um, the day I don't, or that my church doesn't, or that my 
the uh, hierarchy in the seminary doesn't feel like I have anything to contribute, then um, that'd be okay. I'm okay. Michael, let me ask you the question, the same question in a different way. For somebody who is mm, nominally connected to a faith or passing knowledge, maybe won't even, is not able to acknowledge the divine, but still you came across them and he said, this God that you believe in and follow, how would you articulate that in terms of, I see God working in my life. I see God working in the world today in, Mm -hmm. in these ways. It's the same question, but it's a different type of listener or maybe the question is posed from a different person. Um, we, well, we, we talked about stripping kind of, too. <laughs> we, we talked about stripping kind of the language and, and in yeah. terms of being able to articulate to others, Hey, this is, this is my limited understanding of the universe that I'm a part of. And, but, but in the posing of that question, just that way, uh, you have really hit, I believe on my understanding of our bearing witness to Christ in, in some way, in my limited understanding, I am happy to share with you that this is what I have experienced in my life. Uh, I believe that God has been miraculous and I, the, the, you know, we do, if we don't have any shared meaning at all, we, we, we just don't, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I'll be happy uh, to share with you the stories where I have seen God at work, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and then by the way, I'm very comfortable. If you're, if you just want to seek after that, uh, and, and there are different ways, uh, TJ, uh, to be more, you know, to kind of get more poignant, uh, about it. There, there are different ways that we, uh, we can share our faith, but I think, I honestly believe this is, this is Michael, uh, this this not written in a textbook anywhere. I honestly believe that in this day and time, uh, whatever we do, unless we approach it from the standpoint of humility and we do not have all the answers, uh, this is what faith has been for me, then and we are clanging symbols and we're not really getting a hearing in this church culture. And in that regard, you didn't ask me, but you just you just you sort of triggered for me something that I think your listeners may really appreciate. Um, if they don't, that's okay too, because I really appreciate. It. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> I have in my desk drawer. I'm at my office, but it's it's in my desk drawer. But um, it's a letter that I received. Um, well, I don't know what the year it would be. It would be in uh, 1983. Uh, from someone who was um, uh, my best friend at that time. Uh, when I, I was pastor at the Fraser Church uh, in Memphis, and I was a seminary student. And it just so happened that uh, Topps Barbecue has a little place right there on the corner where the church property is still there. Uh, and the church is still there. Uh, but uh, I would, in the middle of the morning sometime, I would go down and, 
and have coffee with a group of usually men that would gather in there every day. They didn't open for lunch until 11 o'clock, but they opened up and let these, let us come in and, and sit in their booths and drink coffee. And I, I was introduced to a gentleman there, a big burly fireman. And, uh, for whatever reason, he seemed to take a liking to me, and I, I liked him a lot. His name was Jack, and I, uh, they began to take me fishing. Uh, these guys, th that was their normal route. They'd gather in the coffee shop in their off days, but fishing was their predominant thing that they wanted to do. He was a fireman, so he worked 24, and he was off 24. And then after three of those, he was off three or four days in a row. And so had a lot of opportunity. And so they started, and they, they taught me how how to uh, how to catch a crappie and a few other things like that. But we, we became good friends. Now, I, I, I just have to tell the story. There, was, there came an occasion, I, there came an occasion where he came to me and he said, now these guys were, I think they would just be self-described roughnecks. They, 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 they were anything but what you would anticipate walking in your church on a Sunday morning. Language-wise and a few other things, uh, you know, they had no concept really. Didn't work. They had no real warmth toward God or church or any of those things. And so the day came when he asked me. He said, "We're going to go camping. We have a little cabin, and we're going to spend three days, and we're going to fish. And I want to invite you. It's my guest to come with us." But he said, I want you to know that we live and let live. And I would be personally offended if you went down there and you tried to tell some of my buddies how they ought to live their life. And they're not going to try to tell you how you ought to live yours. I had no idea what all that meant. And he could not have possibly known that I was dancing a jig on the inside, how happy I was that I was finally going to have a place where I was not on duty. Yeah. Because everywhere else, there were expectations for clergy. And it was, it was a relief to me. And I, I lived up to my end of that, I think. I, I didn't try to tell anybody how they ought to live their life. Uh, and they certainly lived up there. They didn't try to tell me, but but we became friends. And and so Jack became my best friend. And over a long period of time, now I'll I'll, I'll say that I probably might have missed a lot of opportunities, but I never sat down with Jack and said, oh, Jack, by the way, you need to straighten out your life and come to the Savior. I, I've got a I've got a plan over here. I, I've done that with some other people. It hadn't, you know, sometimes it's been used by God and sometimes it has not, but I didn't do that with Jack. We just were friends. We stayed friends. And the day I decided to leave this church, went back to my home church, Monticello. When I graduated from seminary, he was the first one that I told. And what I didn't know is how hard it would be for him. He ended up in the hospital, had a nervous breakdown. And he wouldn't see me. I went in to see him and he wouldn't see me. So I left under those circumstances. And then I got this letter and I, uh, there's 
places that I could read from, but it it just says uh, uh, just uh, a short note to say I'm very sorry the way I acted the last time I saw you. Uh, I just hurt so much to see you. Um, and then he says, I'll be looking to see you. But he said, this, um, this note is stained with my tears. And it was, it is, you can see the tears there. And he said, um, it's really been a rough battle, but the best, I'm reading from my friend Jack, the best, the very best part is that through you, I've found Jesus Christ in my heart. <laughs> and I couldn't even tell you until now. Right? It is my most valuable possession, this letter. What a joy. I didn't do or say anything, TJ. The Lord just used that friendship. And, and I, I, I think, because I'm going to preach on a little evangelism this Sunday uh, from uh, Luke 5, where, where Jesus bars their boat, and makes them fishers of men, tells them they can become fishers of men. And it just you know, it sort of brings, maybe I'll bring my letter to the pulpit. I, I do it on occasion, uh, special occasions. Um, but that, that seems that, you know, Jesus hung out with them and they observed Jesus and, uh, and it was powerful. It was powerful enough to bring many people to believe in him mm. as he was helping them catch fish. <laughs> I mean, get, that's it. And that's it. And so, um, there are other times when, you know, some kind of a formal, um, didactic of here's what you need to do to be saved kind of thing takes place. But for me, a lot of my life in ministry has been relational. And I think that's the key uh, to, um, uh, to helping people uh, want to know a God that really cares about them. If you care about them, I mean, you, know, you can't really make the case. You really can't make the case that God cares about you if you're not willing to care. You, you can't make right. that case. And so. in that relational aspect, there's that level of trust that is built in yep. the interpersonal relationship. Being able to trust you and you being able to trust me. Yeah. 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 Michael, thank you for sharing. Well, yeah, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. What, uh, um, I did his funeral, by the way. I did Jack's funeral some years ago, a few years ago. He had a stroke. And, Mm -hmm. And he, he passed away and man, it, it was so wonderful to be able to stand beside that casket and say, I'll, I'll see you on the other side, old friend. Um, I read his letter. It was the first time any of his family ever knew he'd written that letter. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so just what a joy uh, to, to, to just be able to be part of somebody's life. You know, you got, you can have the rest of the world. Uh, you can have it all. And, and I, I said to my church when I was eight years old or 12 years old that I will consider my life very much worth a living if only one person hears and turns away from destruction and turns to life. Brother, my life has been blessed. 
even with the trials and the struggles, the joys seem to outweigh. You get them both. Yeah. You get them both. You get to choose which one you pay attention to, I guess. Michael, if folks wanted to reach out to you, find you, talk more with you, learn more about the program of alternate studies. And just a, for a sidebar here, uh, the House of Cumberland Presbyterian Studies. Um, you d- yeah, talk you about that really well. But. Yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> correct me, but in that correction, also educate me of what that is. Sure. The director of the program of alternate studies which is the, you know, sort of the primary mover of all things. Although my assistant, Karen Patton, is really the primary mover of all things. All POS students will tell you (laughs) you want to go to. Uh, But but this director's position uh, directs the program. It has been, I'm the fourth. There have only been four directors. um, uh, And uh, it is placed with the seminary. Program of Studies has always been Place with Memphis Theological Seminary for administration um, from its very beginning. And so I have an office at the seminary and uh, my understanding of the role that the director of program owner studies, it's, it's for the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. So that's, I understand my, my role. I have a church that I, uh, that I try to meet the needs of for this alternate education so uh but i do have i have an office in the seminary and i and i answer to the board of trustees uh, make an annual report to the board uh, well it's more than annual two or three times a year report to the board of trustees and and also report through the board of trustees to the general assembly of the cumberland presbyterian church uh, mm-hmm. to kind of get to to stay in constant contact to make sure that we're um, we're trying to address the needs that the church understands that it has and um and so i um i have an office uh, you can email me mqualls m-q-u-a-l-l-s at memphis seminary to it's all one word memphis seminary dot edu does the program of alternate studies and the well i've I butchered it you haven't corrected me yet the house of cumberland presbyterian studies do they have a website that you can point people to? Uh, both of them, are, well, there are two things. The, the, at the seminary, if you go to the Memphis Seminary, uh, Memphis Theological Seminary uh, website, uh, you, we, there are, uh, there's a page for the Program of Alternative Studies. You can find it easily on the introductory page. Uh, in fact, if you're wanting to be a student, there's a, there's a series of different programs that you get into. Program of Alternative Studies is one of those that you can look at it has the basics of what the program does and and who qualifies and and that sort of thing uh as student and uh and so also the cumberland presbyterian house of studies (laughs) thank you i've been waiting for that (laughs) correction (laughs) cphs cumberland presbyterian house of studies has a page there as well um and we both we have for both those programs we also have facebook page and uh, that's sometimes uh, for many people an easier way to communicate but um, Cumberland Persian House of Studies is relatively new I say maybe three years old at this point 
and still a, a work in progress. Mm. But its design uh, was for seminary students. Uh, the, the notion, I'll just say this, I guess most of my viewers might be coming from here, although I've really done a poor job of addressing the that community that you keep referencing that does not have the language of the history <laughs> to share <laughs> with us. And I'm not very good at that. But uh, anyway, uh, Cumberland Presbyterians will um, will know that uh, students come from all over the church to attend Memphis Theological Seminary and are formed for ministry over a period of three, five, seven years, however long it takes these days to get a degree and are often segregated uh, from the church or uh, the church is segregated from students. You got the church oftentimes doesn't even know they have students in Memphis Theological Seminary. There are 25 currently enrolled in spring semester, various different programs. That's, that's a pretty good number. That's 13% of the student body. Memphis Theological Seminary is a, an ecumenical mission of the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. I am uniquely connected to and, and interested in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church part of that. One of the things that the seminary does, not the only thing, one of the things the seminary does is minister, prepare, as we talked earlier, prepare women and men who are called for ministry in the Cumberland Presbyterian Church. And so Cumberland Presbyterian House Studies is designed because we don't have, um, as when I was going to seminary here, almost 100% of the faculty were Cumberland Presbyterian. That has changed over the last three or four decades. And, uh, and now there's not a, as much Cumberland Presbyterian um, emphasis or influence. And so our students need to be connected in our unique Cumberland Presbyterian heritage and connected to the church at large. So, the, so as the Cumberland Presbyterian House of Studies uh, offers luncheons and events where we invite in leaders from across the denomination or we provide some unique program uh, for our Cumberland Presbyterian students and the church at large. We often invite Cumberland Presbyterians who are nearby enough. Um, we're talking pre-COVID again. Soon it'll be post-COVID, I hope, um, onto the campus for these events so that they can interact with their students. Their students can interact with them and remain connected to the church and, and to that historical theology and, um, and history that makes us unique. Um, there is also an ad academic component of that. Um, and uh, the notion is that I am the director of the Cumberland Presbyterian House Studies is also tasked with trying to make sure that the Cumberland Presbyterian courses that are required are made available and offered in a timely manner. We don't have them every semester, uh, but while students are going through toward graduation, if they're Cumberland Presbyterian Student Center, we need to make sure that at least the minimal Cumberland Presbyterian courses are offered. And then we're, we're it's in the planning stages, but we're trying to develop courses that are specific uh, that would be specifically helpful to the Cumberland Presbyterian Church 
and to the ministers that are going back to the common Presbyterian context. So just as a couple of three quick examples, rural ministry, something that hasn't been particularly emphasized uh, in, in recent years. Uh, we are in an urban setting, but uniquely positioned because you go any direction and you're in a rural setting in just a minute. It's just a short period of time. And most of our students, and it's certainly true of our Crumbin Presbyterian students, are coming from a rural setting and in all likelihood will go back into a rural setting. So we're thinking about what, what kind of, uh, of ministry can we offer that will help them in that context. That's, that's in the planning process. Evangelism, something that our church is very interested in. And we've been pretty careful not to call evangelism evangelism because it has all kinds of negative connotations for a lot of people. Right. Uh, I, I won't bore you with another story, but it, 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 it has a negative connotation for many people in part because of how it has been practiced or understood. Mm-hmm. So, so, but we, we have to figure out how can we um, enable is not the right word, but how can we help our Cumberland Presbyterians uh, to prepare to be effective and evangelistically or help congregations learn evangelistic effectiveness? Uh, as soon as we figure out a better word, we'll use that one. Faith um, sharing. Faith sharing. Um, that'll work. And, and so that's in the works and some other classes, uh, you know, uh, the, the, to put the Cumberland Presbyterian Church in the historical context of the Reformed churches in general, uh, that would be a, a class that we, we could offer that Cumberland. So the idea would be that we'll have, we'll have enough classes that uh, meet the qualifications. These are uniquely helpful to Cumberland Presbyterians so that a student entering as a first year student could elect or choose to emphasize uh, and get a certificate in Cumberland Presbyterian studies by taking these as their electives uh, along the way. Same basic education, but then an emphasis on these areas that are uniquely helpful to Cumberland Presbyterians. So that's that's where we are are thinking. Go ahead. All right. And so that's a peek into the future of the House of Cumberland Presbyterian Studies. No. Cumberland Presbyterian House of Studies. All right. I just think of a physical plant or a physical space. Well, uh, thanks for correcting me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the words are there. They're just kind of jumbled up. There's, hey, a, doesn't matter. there's a house. Yeah. There's studies. The house, there's, CP, there's Cumberland there's Presbyterians studies. there. <laughs> yep. Yep. Michael, thank you so much for letting me peer into part of your life and your faith journey, the insights that you shared about the program of alternate studies and and preparation of ministry and the encouragement that you bring to the church and to the students and and to to the denomination and beyond. Um, I appreciate your thoughts and your time. Thank you, TJ. I appreciate the opportunity to talk with you and, uh, and, and the church at large, all. And the world at large. (laughs) (laughs) And thank you for listening to today's podcast. Grab a friend and travel with me on the next journey down Cumberland Road.